Hello. Today I am joined by Lauren Holt and Susanna Alexander, and I've spoken with both of you in the past uh, separately. Susanna, I spoke with you and Aaron Kinspotter, and we talked about your experience as a trainee in a clinical mental health counseling program. And Lauren, you and I talked about your experience as a trainee in a clinical mental health counseling program. And the two of you have that in common, that background of <clears throat> going into counseling education, seeing the state of it as it is, and and exiting before completing a master's degree. And I, uh, Susanna, you recently wrote an article where you explored some of the origins of this particular strain of ideology in counseling, I guess, in the counseling profession broadly. And I'm really curious mm -hmm. to hear more about yeah. that. So thank you both for being here and uh, for joining me for this conversation. And Susanna, would you like to say a little bit more about your article and what you found? Yeah, yes. So after you know we had had our last conversation, um, I felt really compelled to dig in to figure out how counseling had gotten to where it was um, because it just like it really blew me away that these were people who were you know licensed trained counselors who were effectively bullying me and pushing me out of the program and repeatedly suggesting or you know saying to me you you seem like you you know might want to harm yourself um, which is so wildly out of line with how I would think that someone who has an understanding of, you know, good mental health would want to interact with someone. So I uh, did some digging in uh, the ACA's history, which they have all of this stuff uh, online. Uh, and I found out that there had been a series of like mega meetings in counseling. And the first First one was in 1988, and they got together, and the problem that they focused on was that they felt like counseling wasn't distinguished from uh, from social other work. sorts of counseling. So there was psychotherapy, and yeah, and there was social work, mm -hmm. and they didn't feel like people really understood what what counseling was when you called it that way. And, and when you there say was, they, uh, who's the they that was in the room? I'm sorry. Well, so, so there is, I, I, I don't have my list of names here, but there uh, is all written down in, let me see, I'm pulling up the document right now. Um, but, uh, oh, interesting. They have moved some of those uh, some of those documents. Good thing I have oh. them all uh, on my computer, um, all downloaded. Um, but there was okay. So the uh, one of the main authors of this was uh, a Dr. Walls, um, but it was all of the luminaries of the profession. So you had people there from the ACA. The event was sponsored by Chi Sigma Iota. Um, it was also put together by the licensing boards, the um, the main one where it has all of the rest of the license. I've got my little list over here because there's so much of this is alphabet soup with all of these different organizations. Um, and for those people who are not familiar with the ACA, 
Um, there are also 10 other organizations that are sub-organizations of the ACA, um, like ACES, which is the Association for Counselor Education and Supervision, and ARCA, and pretty much all of those groups, or for the ones that had not been established yet, the, the progenitors of those groups were all at this big meeting in 1988. Um, and at that meeting, they focused on there not being a, a cohesive professional identity. Um, and I even quoted from this document in my article, and this is what this is what they said at that. They said, we believe that counselors are on the bubble, that they are in the midst of an intense and aggressive competition with other special services and special interest groups who who are clamoring toward the inside track for money and support. Unless counselors can be seen as offering a distinct contribution, their bubble may well burst and they will be bumped by more aggressive individuals who know what they are about. Now, it was within just a few years of this that they landed on advocacy as that's this is the piece that's gonna make counseling stand out. We're adopting advocacy whatever that means. Um, and if I recall correctly from my research, it was Chai Sigma Iota that decided that uh, advocacy was the way to go. And so they moved forward with this and they had another series of meetings in 1998. There was two that year and they were in Greensboro, North Carolina. And these were very select meetings. Um, they issued invitations so not everyone was allowed to come and they had those meetings when they put those things together they had they had the most of these meetings were all sponsored by chai sigma iota and they did the organization for that sort of thing with the help of the licensing boards um but they had cockrep or kcrep was there um the aces members were there they and you know they had uh, you know, large swaths of the educators there. Um, they had, you know, of course, they had the other licensing board peoples there. What in, in the document that they wrote up about this, though, they don't mention that there's, you know, something of a conflict of interest in having all of those groups together to try and make decisions about the entirety of the profession. What they did when they finished up, though, is they wrote up a whole document and they had a list of different objectives that they wanted to reach. Um, and a big one from the 1988 meeting was pushing multiculturalism. They mm. said that counselors needed to adopt that. And in the 1988 document, they even say that clients needed to be encouraged to adopt multiculturalism as a value. And that's wow. something that they have never publicly uh, stepped back from, you know, not in anything that I found. They they scrub it in the, like the 2010 meeting and, you know, they don't list it in there. They just focus on the count counselors need to have multiculturalism as a value, but they never publicly disavow that. So at the 1998 meeting they dole out all of these different jobs so and they you know they say that what they want is they want cockrep to create these standards 
that include these values, including multiculturalism. Uh, and the ACA is going to work to get COCREP as a requirement for licensing everywhere that they can across the country. Um, and they do the promotion. And then, of course, the, the licensing board is not specifically called out. But it's it's written down, and there's a full document in it. And in the sections where you read on the bottom, you know, like where you know where you might see, you know, these people were dissenting. What they have is a list of obstacles. You know, what sort of obstacles would they have to reaching the goals? And one of the things listed under obstacles are the counselors that don't agree with what we're trying to do oh, which man. those people weren't they weren't <laughs> even invited and they're just listed as an obstacle so you know they continue to push forward with this there was another uh a refresher set of meetings in 2010 um and they're still you know trying to hammer out these you know they one of the things that they wanted was to get uh, uh where counselors can get paid by Medicare and so that they can work over different state lines. And as recently as September of last year, uh, KCREP wrote an open letter where they're complaining about the ACA because the ACA had written in counseling today where now that they have gotten to where counselors uh, can work across state lines, KCREP wants that to be limited to only KCREP accredited counselors. So you have to go through a KCREP school in order to take advantage of that. And in the ACA's write-up about that, they are more like, well, you know, we've had other counselors that are, you know, didn't go to KCREP, maybe they're okay. And KCREP's calling them out and saying, you know, no, we held up our side of the bargain and you guys should be too. Um, so it the, the, the whole closeness of it there is in for me personally i think that's really wildly inappropriate you know those organizations shouldn't be working together um and there should be in my mind something of an adversarial relationship from the accreditors to the colleges they they shouldn't be working together because how do you hold them accountable and the the big thing that i ran into there is what i found out is that the accreditors are actually paid for by the college. Mm -hmm. So they 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 pay for that. You know, it's like if you were to go to good housekeeping and say, you know, hey, I've got 50 bucks. Can I get your seal, you know, seal of approval? And that's what's happening. And there, so there's no there's no incentive for KCREP to hold the universities accountable for maintaining their standard. Right. So when when I came out of my program, one of the things that I did is I filed a complaint with KCREP because one of their standards is that the universities have a duty to try and retain students, you know, and in my case, of course, they were pushing me out. And I said, you know, hey, this is not meeting the standard that you set. And, you know, from my point of view as a student there, if there's going to be any value to accreditation it should be that they're doing what the accreditors say that they're supposed to do right and if that's not happening then accreditation has no value mm -hmm. and in the case of counseling they have added language that dei must be taught throughout the entire program 
So not only does it have no value, it has negative value because it's teaching things in a context that is bad for the student's mental health. And there's no proven track record that any of this stuff helps clients. And, you know, you can, I've got, it looks like they've, they're on to me now because they're changing some of these links, but this article is still up at Minding the Campus. And I encourage people to go see it and look at the documents that they can uh, still reach. Um, but I downloaded copies of all of that stuff. So I have it on my computer and uh, on the cloud and I've shared it with a number of other writers as well. So it's out there. They're not gonna be able to hide forever. Well, I'll um, be sure to include yeah, that that's, link. That's what I found. I'll include the link here, yeah, but would you say it out loud again where people can find that if they wanna go and yeah. pull that up while we're talking? Yeah. It's on uh, Minding the Campus, and the article is called, the title of it is Counseling's Political Purity Push, Unveiling the Identity Crisis that Hijacked Accreditation and Shaped a Profession. Nice title. Yeah, that's really great. I That's that's really interesting. So I I have thought that counseling seems like it's having an identity crisis. And, and, oh, for sure. And it seems like it's been going on for a long time. I I didn't realize that it was uh, that long. I had no idea that this was happening back in the 80s and 90s, but that's really interesting. When I was in undergrad, it was in the um, late 2000s. I graduated in 2008, so mid-2000s, mid I guess, um, the aughts, I guess. And um, I was in a psychology undergraduate program. They had a, I was, my faculty mentor was part of the, was a clinical psychologist and a cl clinical psychology professor. They were very clinically oriented and there was, uh, they had an IO program, industrial organizational psychology. So they taught consumer psychology and, and then also organizational um, it, psychology, but they also had this clinical program and they had a different school, a school of counseling that was separate from the psychology program. It was counseling. It was something different. And I was kind of interested in that at the time. I thought maybe I wanted to be a counselor. And I talked with my faculty mentor about that. I had been uh, taking practice LSATs. I was getting ready to go into law school, but I sort of had this like last minute, maybe I really, I really enjoy psychology. I really enjoy working with people. Maybe I want to be a counselor instead. And when I spoke with my mentor and with the other uh, faculty member that I was working on a research project with, um, they really poo-pooed counseling. Like, that's not real. That's not science. You don't want to do that. That's that's junk. It's like, that's this silly thing that, that intelligent people don't go into. You want to be a clinical psychologist. You, you know, maybe if you decide not to go to law school, you should go get your PhD in clinical psychology. That's where it's at, or at least get a PsyD. But counseling, that's that's not serious work. And, you know, you probably encountered this, but I was really struck when I was going through undergrad and then when I went to graduate school for this applied psychology program, how much time psychology programs spend basically apologizing for themselves and trying to prove that they're a real science. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. all of your intro classes are trying to legitimize this work and yeah. they're trying to legitimize it based on sort of a scientific empirical process that undermines the 
complexity of human of the human emotion and experience in mm. a way that to me my to my way of thinking the counseling ethos that i was observing that was being poo-pooed it it's not something you can line up very easily with a scientific categorical well, framework and there's a reason for that yeah but i sensed that split then and this would have been you know 15 years ago or whatever um i sensed that that division but i had no idea that this was a bigger division going further back Mm-hmm. I have seen the focus come uh, mm-hmm. recently. It's all about clinician. My program, everybody was a clinician. We're a clinician. This, this is the language that's being used. You're not a counselor. You're a clinician or you're a therapist. And that seems to me, that'll probably irritate some people who watch this who are clinicians or think of themselves as clinicians and therapists. But to me, that seems like it's a medicalization of that. So mm-hmm. there's this there's a multifaceted identity crisis going on. For sure. It's interesting as Suzanne was talking, it's like, (laughs) I was just thinking about how these, these boards and accreditors, they just seem so concerned with their own competitions with other branches of mental health and their own egos and their own identities. And like, when are they ever really thinking about clients? It's like, they're only thinking about clients in terms of how they can impose an ideology on the client. (laughs) Like, it's just it's they they overcomplicate everything the other thing i was thinking about too was um i've heard from from counselors that social work has has been around longer and has lobbied harder um to maintain power over insurance reimbursement and things like that and so there's a lot of animosity between um the counseling profession and the social work profession in fact one school that i applied to their personal statement um, was not a freeform personal statement. They had some questions that they wanted answered. And one of the four questions that they wanted you to answer was, why didn't you choose social work? Mm. <laughs> Which is like, what about why didn't you, why did you choose counseling instead of why didn't you choose our, our competitor or our enemy? Hmm. Um, I just find it so inane that, first of all, that there are so many different branches of what should really probably be the same thing. And I also think it's kind of funny that there's no master's in therapy. That's always been really weird to me. I'm like, why can't you, you can study marriage and family therapy, but that's kind of a different thing. And that license is not as respected in most states with the exception of California. So it's like, (laughs) I just, uh, that's all I have to say. I can't even finish my sentence because I find all of this so absurd and ridiculous. It, yeah, that, it is. Sure. It, ab- it absolutely is. And, you know, I was thinking the similar thing uh, myself, you know, what if in 1988, they decided to focus their attention on, you know, let's make sure that our counting is, you know, serving the client better than anything else, you know, like, that was their top goal. Um, but one of the things that I found, and there's a, you know, even a research article on it, is that particularly within the last decade, there's been a real fall off on research focusing on what makes counseling work or, you know, different sorts of therapies. And a lot of the research has been regarded, uh, you know, how do we push DEI? You know, how do we make more uh, critical theories 
you know, in our pedagogy, you know, how do we, how do we interject that in better rather than how do we, you know, serve clients, you know, mm -hmm. to the extent that there was a study done saying that there's not enough counseling studied. Um, and it, it is an interesting footnote on that particular study. It talks about how there's counseling psychology and counseling and how they get confused still. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was within the last, you know, 10 years. So 40 years, 40 years of trying to define themselves and get noticed as being counselors. And, you know, that's not working. And they're doubling down on, you know, trying to focus on that professional identity rather than how do we make sure that what we're doing is serving clients. Right. I think that's why I it think feels that's so a performative. Huge Sorry, I think that's why it all feels mm -hmm. so performative, like the insertion of the social justice stuff and the DEI, at least when you're studying it, that was my experience. It felt so performative and, and surface level, like they were doing it because they had to, which is true in academia in general, it feels performative. But it's when you're doing something because you're concerned about how you're going to be perceived by others because your identity is your foremost concern, it always feels performative. Right. So like, what is what is their real concern? Is it just gaining ground over social work and other more established fields? Is it doing the right thing so that they don't get dismantled and get in trouble? Or is it actually like serving the populace? Because I think if it were serving the populace, they wouldn't be driving students out of school in such hostile ways that make us end up needing mental health services <laughs> because we're so distraught from what happens. They also wouldn't make it so difficult for people to move from state to state to pursue helping the populace. I mean, all I feel like so much of what the counseling profession does is completely against what they preach on paper. And whenever I ventured into bringing that kind of thing up in classes, it was not like I was shut down or, or canceled for that, but they all the professors always found a way to kind of move back to whatever robotic topic they'd had for the day you know it's like we never really delved into that even though I feel that's so so central to why the profession is broken for those within it and also why mental health is so hard for people to access and 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 use effectively you know well at what point did it become more um regulated at what at what point did counseling become regulated by states and by the government good question was that around that same time or was it earlier do you have a sense of that Susanna did you find that in your research well the um so the addition of licensures happened uh, over a, a bit of a longer period of time so counseling as a profession started you know, somewhere around like the 1950s, that sort of thing, when the, like when the ACA was formed, it started as uh, school guidance counselors and different administrators from college, uh, colleges and that sort of thing. And they got together and they made the ACA, but it was under a different name for a long time. And it wasn't until, you know, relatively recently that it really firmed up on being the ACA and they defined themselves as counselors and they started to define what the profession is and what they were about. And just in terms of like getting a handle on what they were doing, I think that those were very important and essential steps. 
Um, and the impression that I get is that, you know, there was a back and forth with the, you know, straight psychology professions where they were taking the insights from that. And as far as the guidance counselors were concerned, you know, they were applying those in the setting and the profession grew beyond that as they moved along. Um, but then there did develop this competitive element between the psychology professions and counseling. Um, and a lot of the, some of the language in the early documents is about how we need to have our own research, our own, our counseling research, so that, I, you know, the impression that I get is they didn't want to always be like borrowing from psychology. And they introduced, you know, competition there where had it been more cooperative from the beginning, you know, that would have been helpful. I mean, one of the frustrations that I had in my classes is, I've been a lot of insights into what people actually do from economics that is not being considered, you know, as insightful to how you can help people. You know, there's there's what they say they're going to do, and then there's what they actually do. And I think, you know, bringing those two together is what's going to make the profession go forward and, you know, really have some helpful advancements for clients. Um, but there's so much antagonistic behavior there between the different groups, they're not open to accepting any studies or information coming from the other side. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's part of where that start started. And, you know, why there continues to be a problem today, because they're not always uh, looking to each other's research as a place for learning. It's more of a, a competitive arrangement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I read like a single academic article that was assigned to me when I was in either of the schools that I went to for counseling that was where in the article was from a journal of social work, for example, or a journal of psychology. It was always counseling centric stuff. And I'm, I'm not saying that that I mean, that's kind of normal because academia loves to silo fields into, mm-hmm. you know, little buckets. But um Given that this field and all of the other mental health fields are purportedly aimed at at joining together to help the common man, you would think that they would they would draw upon all the research that they can instead of being petty and um, only you know living in an echo chamber, which is mm-hmm. kind of how I, I think felt. it's definitely been been a huge limitation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, there was this decision made some time ago to prioritize advocacy and multiculturalism in what it means to be a counselor, what the counseling profession is. I don't think that people know that. I don't think that people think of that when they think of seeing a counselor or a therapist or, or none of us did. They, no, I should. I certainly <laughs> didn't. Do did you? come across in your research, Susanna, the how uh, multiculturalism was initially conceptualized and what that meant and who formulated that? Um, there is a, I don't have all of that information like right on hand right now, but yes, there is a huge document uh, that covers the first 
meeting. That's where that came from. The 1988 meeting is where the uh, multiculturalism came from. Um, and my, my memory of what they were talking about at the time is what they were, what their concern was that we were becoming a country that had more variety of people in it, more, more diversity, um, just in the strict sense, not in the DEI sense at that point. Um, and their conceptualization of how to manage that was this multicultural idea where you're just more accepting of everyone doing everything kind of in their own way mm -hmm. and, and with you know without any sort of you know is way or you know how do we how do we take into account the majority culture and include smaller cultures it's just more everything was more fragmented and there didn't there was not there wasn't language in that document that said that there is the majority culture we need to bring people in it was there's multiculturalism is happening and we need to push this as a value um, and that was one of my issues is that a lot of these different concepts were poorly defined you know mm -hmm. advocacy was poorly defined it's really you know like you know, my conceptualization is you advocate for something, you know, advocacy is not its own goal. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. that that's, uh, you know, a problem right there at the very beginning. Um, but there's not, there's not documentation as to what exactly multiculturalism is, and what it will look like, you know, if we're, if we're even doing it right, you know, that's not it might be addressed somewhere else, but it's not in that document. Um, and there's not, I could do, I could stand to do some more study in there and try and figure out um, if they did any experimentation to, you know, determined if multiculturalism even works. Like, is that, is that something that would work pushed out through the entire society. And I suspect that there wasn't any study done to do that. I think there was an assumption that multiculturalism is just a blanket good and we're going to do that. And, you know, society is going to be better. There, there was definitely language in there that the counseling groups felt like they had a responsibility to lead society in a certain way and that mm -hmm. was why they wanted to encourage or you know enforce that clients and counselors needed to accept multiculturalism as a value mm -hmm. um and i think they're just huge problems with that and there wasn't there wasn't the solid foundation that this was actually going to help in the same mm -hmm. way that you know today with critical theories there's never been any verifiable empirical proof that this you know if we do this and have everybody do it that this is actually going to help people you know it's just kind of like i feel mm -hmm. it and i think it's going to work so you know we're going to go with it yeah um, i think that's well, a real big shortcoming it's there. interesting you know when you're bringing that up you're saying that's kind of throwing away or casting aside any focus on one particular set of traditions or morals because you're trying to be more 
more broad and more open-minded and accepting of lots of different backgrounds and and ways of life and it seems like there's there's an inherent several inherent contradictions within this counseling model and one of them is like this there's this person-centered ethos like this this rogerian each person has their own unique phenomenological view as the counselor, you are to get to know them and see it from their perspective. And, and you're supposed to have this unconditional positive regard. And the individual is the expert on their own life. And you're there to help alongside them through a lot of reflections and just process partnering, really. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's the, the establishment of the clinician as expert providing diagnosis, providing smart treatment plans, and telling you how to get right and deciding for you. And so th these things are kind these are in opposition, but also how what, foundationally, and I know this is, this is a kind of a big question, I guess, foundationally, how do we determine what is, what is right? What is a person, if a person is seeking therapy in order to what become more healthy, what mm. does that look like? Who's determining that? the counselor, their education, the subjective experience of the person that you're going and seeing, and what is that held up against? And I, one place I will point to is sexual morality, sexual issues. Like I've, I have talked about this. This was one of the areas where I became very confused about what, what am I even being asked to think through this program? When we did a human sexuality class and our teacher talked about a client of hers who told her that he did scat porn and I, I i can't believe i've said this like probably five times on a youtube channel i've said that phrase like why am i saying <laughs> that phrase but but this this was told to us uh, by our professor she said she was giving us an example she's a human sexuality professor and she was talking about how your clients are going to bring you things that you might find strange it's really important that you be accepting and keep a straight face and she was talking about how hard it was for her not to laugh at her client when he started saying he did scat porn. And my thought was, I don't, I don't see how that was funny, really. I think that that should have been um, perhaps something to explore with him. What does that mean? How did you start? How do you feel about that? Why, what is it that makes you do this? And, and how, you know, it's just, it opens up a whole lot of questions, but then at the foundationally we weren't being told that there was anything that was normal there wasn't anything given to us to hold up as normal good healthy you know these were not words that were in fact these are like anathema you're not supposed to think in terms of norm you're supposed to think in terms of queering and mm -hmm. how everything is okay and accepting and not kink shaming and so what exactly are you there to help that client do except mm -hmm. maybe accept their own like accept uh, their experience or their own yeah whatever it is so like what is the counselor for in that instance just to help everybody be okay with everything and so that i you know in terms of professional identity and a and a if everything is okay all cultures all potential cultures and sexualities are being considered cultures and communities Mm -hmm. everything so I don't know exactly what my question is but something yeah. in there I'm just exploring that what did did you two have a sense of that have you gotten a sense of that through your training and do you know where I'm going with this 
Yeah, I mean, well, first, I really I I like how you expressed um, the irony or hypocrisy. I'm not sure which of those two words is better here, but of of being diagnostic clinicians, where when you're diagnosing, you're 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 figuring out what's wrong in essence, um, and at the same time saying that nothing is wrong and everything needs to be acceptable it doesn't work together. Right. And I'm like you, Leslie, I really, I don't really think diagnosis is fits with the counseling profession because I think a lot of people who go to see counselors are, what was that word you used? Like the worried well. Mm, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say normal people that's rude, but people who are going through just everyday life issues, you know, and who don't really need a diagnosis, but who need that, that process support and, kind of a form of spiritual support that's, you know, not religious. Um, so the thing that I was hearing when I was listening to that was just these, this pattern of, of hypocrisy and like inner conflict within the counseling professions. Like they say one thing, but then they do another. Right. And when it comes to acceptance right now, they're saying we accept everybody, but they certainly don't accept other viewpoints and they certainly don't really accept white people anymore. And they certainly are not very accepting, especially of cisgender white students or professors. So you can't say that you're accepting of all and that you're pro multiculturalism when you're not accepting of any particular group. You can't say that. I mean, they're saying it, but you're it's not truthful, right? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that goes back to 1988 in that initial document. They complain how so many of the counselors are white women, young white women. Even then. Yeah, well, maybe make your schooling more affordable mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or, so that people or, who are coming from backgrounds like less economically privileged backgrounds historically than white people will be able to go study 60 credits of school and be in school for three years and then have to work for a pittance for mm -hmm. two to four years after before they can get a license, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like these but whenever you bring up those issues, like the money, the logistics, how difficult they make it, how you have to pay for supervision, like all of that kind of stuff. Whenever I brought that stuff up, it was just, you know, shoved aside and we returned to the rhetoric. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's really interesting how mismatch how, how big a mismatch there is between what's going on within this profession within this development of a professional identity versus what i think the average person pictures when they picture a counselor mm -hmm. or counseling and i i have known i know and i have worked with really good counselors mm -hmm. really wonderful helpful people who the, and my criticisms of this profession are not of individual people. It's it's and the training that I received, I actually had some teachers that were very good, who I'm mm -hmm. sure were very helpful and good counselors for for any of their clients. I'm I'm sure that they were. I had a skills professor, who was fantastic. I really liked this guy. He was he was really good and um, a group counseling professor who was excellent and. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I'm not trying to call out counselors by, by bringing up my criticisms of this field, but it does seem like there's a lot of inherent 
inconsistency here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot. I mean, yeah. even and I, I, ahead, well, I think you can be in support of counselors and counseling. I mean, there is evidence that counseling does help people, even though we're not sure why, other than that it's mostly the relationship. The relationship, yeah. You know, and still be able to see that, like, the main thrust of what the field is trying to do is incoherent and is working counter to what actually does seem to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because how can you build a trusting relationship with a counselor if they're trying to push an ideology on you, mm -hmm. particularly if they do that after developing a trusting relationship with you, which is something that I remember Dr. Kinsfader was talking about that in one of your videos about, um, that article that he had read recently where the the author was who was in the counseling profession was writing about how how you can develop the safe space and the trusting relationship and then once you've done that then you have the groundwork to go in and, and do the critical race theory stuff it's like that is so disturbing um you know if i if if the counselor that i had now suddenly after working with him for a few months suddenly started to like pepper in ideological questions or things that were entirely unrelated to what I had come there for my my trust in him as a helping professional would be eroded almost immediately right because he wouldn't be guided by what you need oh. and what you feel and what you want for your own life you would be guided by some outside thing which is another another huge foundational inconsistency yeah. If you are, and yet, Susanna, you mentioned like, what is, what, how is counseling helpful? It does appear to help. And we talked about this in, um, in my program, they show the studies on this and they, they show over and over again that the modality used by the therapist or the, the theoretical framework is much less important than the quality of the relationship between the counselor mm -hmm. and the client. And it does come down to relationship. And if you think about this kind of profession, it has its roots in something that happened before it was, before it was um, made an economic position. Mm -hmm. It's just people seeking counsel from other people that they think are wise and have life experience, or they think that might, might be willing to listen to them and help them, you know? So there's, this is a human connection at its, at its foundation. It's a, a process of people helping each other and listening to each other and helping each other figure their stuff out. And this is just such a human thing that we, we perform all the time in our lives with our friends and our family members. And this is just a way to give some people more foundational training in development and lifespan and human norms. And, and, and so that they have a little bit more of a solid basis from which to help others. Right. But if you're using that in order to then inject an ideological framework, an ideological, you know, you're, it's, it's really like taking advantage of the trust that you're building in order to be some kind of demented teacher. <laughs> like we're, yeah. we're really teachers, but before we teach you, we get you on our side and we make you trust us. You've told us all your most vulnerable stuff. You've told us all your secrets. And so now you have this deep investment in this relationship and now that i've got you there i have a bunch of stuff that i'm going to teach you and that just, you just feels so insidious cult. yeah it's a cult <laughs> yeah. you just described the cult like yeah. perfectly mm -hmm. right 
There's another piece of hypocrisy that I found really huge was they're always talking about autonomy mm -hmm. and how we need to honor the, the client's autonomy. We need to help promote the client's autonomy, 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 autonomy. Mm -hmm. So how is it honoring autonomy if you drive students out of school who are good students? Like I didn't have any autonomy in deciding whether or not I wanted to stay at that school. They pretended that I did by telling me that I could come back. But then if you listen to the video of what happened to me, they never answered my emails and they ghosted me and basically did everything they could so that I wouldn't come back. So how is that honoring my autonomy as a person that they made a decision on my behalf about what I should do with my life. They decided that I was not, you know, an appropriate member for the cult. Um, I, I feel like if you went through the counseling code of ethics and all of their core values, you could probably quite easily find behavior that contradicts those values, not only in the schooling, but also in the behavior of licensing boards um, and just in the, in the entire rhetoric of the profession. Hmm. Yeah, I think that the there's another thing that I guess this kind of goes back to honoring your autonomy what the school is saying it wants to do it wants you to do as a professional with your clients mm -hmm. it's not doing towards you I mean so they're yes. not they're not practicing what they're teaching and this was an interesting thing that came up for me in my program as well they at our orientation, they talked about how this was going to feel like you went through three years of intensive therapy. They talked about it. They drew parallels for us. They had speaker after speaker stand up and, and reiterate this, that the professors and students who were further along in the program talked to all of us incoming students about how much this was going to dig cause you to dig into yourself it's going to be very much like um like a therapeutic process that you're going through mm -hmm. as you go through this program so they drew they created that that expectation mm -hmm. and then when i took this multiculturalism course where i and i've got i've got some videos up where i go through some of the papers that um some of the responses back and forth this was my worst class in this program yeah. um it was a, a lot of bullying. It was teaching CRT from the angle of making fun of white people pretty much the whole time. It was just, we're going to watch YouTube videos where white people look stupid. And then we're going to talk about how stupid white people are was pretty much yeah. my, my multicultural, yeah. my multiculturalism class. So I, I, my complaints around this were that this was not taking this issue very seriously, that there are serious ways that we can pull this apart and talk about racial tension or race relations or things like this, but we we're doing it in this very sophomoric childish level. Like it's like kids sharing memes at the, in this class. Yeah. So my mm -hmm. criticisms about this in some of my papers, I talked about my own background and I said, well, here's some experiences in my own life that, that contradict some of the blanket statements that are being made here mm -hmm. about how white people think or how black people think or whatever. And um, the response that I would get from my professor was, well, I'm not, I'm not a therapist, so I'm not going to, I can't help you with these things as she was not your therapist. implying me, mm -hmm. implying that I was neat, that I was writing these things to ask for help, which I wasn't. So mm -hmm. she kept on reframing it as if I was 
mentally ill and needing her to help me with my issue and her telling me over and over that I don't, that she was not qualified in this relationship to do this. Mm -hmm. And then in my permanent record on my narrative evaluation, she wrote that I needed therapy for my issues around race. And this was basically because I was having an argument with the premises that she was setting up in class. Mm -hmm. And so there was this there, there was this, oh, come join us. We are going to therapize you. We are going to ask you to dig deep and be a part of a therapeutic process as you go through this program. And then once you get in it, I was actually being ridiculed yeah. by my professor. And, and she was the one telling me that I was looking to her for therapy. And then she was ridiculing me for doing that. And then and so she was, was diagnosing you and then she was diagnosing and telling you me. what kind of help you needed, yeah. which is exactly what the head of the department did with me mm-hmm. when he decided that I needed to go to counseling to learn how to listen. Cause I had asked a question, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah, is funny when you think about it that way, if somebody asks a question, uh, how are they presenting themselves as someone who can't listen? You're asking a question because you want to listen to a response, right? Like just the whole thing is insane. There's a so crazy how how similar all of our well, it's so crazy how similar all of our experiences are. And, you know, particularly with the uh, you know, with the faculty and the the faculty, one of the one of the K CREP requirements is that the faculties have to be licensed counselors. They have to hold licenses. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it if they cannot invoke those trainings with their students, you know, it's like, it's, you know, I guess the, the worst example is of, you know, if you can't do teach, um, you yeah. know, they may hold the licenses, but they're definitely not functioning appropriately for the, you know, for the profession. Mm-hmm. This, this, um, what you just said, Lauren, about being, basically diagnosed and I don't know and I think that yeah you said that as well Susanna that they were saying that you must want to hurt yourself which is shocking like Mm -hmm. why would they imply such a thing but these Mm -hmm. things are and the thing that I I had on my record which was basically you need to go seek therapy because you have problems accepting some of the things that we're telling you um (laughs) I I've mentioned this book I think three times in the last week because I've been reading it and I I found it very interesting. It's called Mad in America by Robert Whitaker. And it's a history of how the mental health profession has operated over time. And Mm -hmm. there's a long history of basically this comes back to my, my question, which I framed around sexual morality, but it could be around anything. What is the norm of a society? If a society has a class of people who are, who are, diagnosing you against some norm Mm -hmm. and calling you dysfunctional and saying that you have these illnesses Mm -hmm. they're doing that against something right so there's some supposed Mm -hmm. norms and so often that ends up being a political norm or a social norm that is not necessarily um easily psychologically quantified i mean uh, psychiatrically i suppose where where, what is my behavior how is it wrong Mm -hmm. and there was a doctor in canada that i spoke with not that long ago or sometime at some point last year who was forced to undergo therapy because he was disagreeing with the schools that he taught at this school's dei program and so he was diagnosed 
as having a problem based on that. I don't know what his diagnosis was, but he was in order to keep his job, he had to go and see a psychologist or, or a counselor of some kind. And we saw that happen um, slightly differently, but with Jordan Peterson, his organization made him go and get coaching for social media behavior, saying that your, your behavior is embarrassing to your profession and you need to get, so anyway, we keep seeing somebody's determining a norm, but mm-hmm. what is that norm? And what are counselors being taught? Cause I didn't have a sense of a norm against which we were supposed to be assessing people. No, I mean, all we were doing when I was there was, was learning how whiteness had been the norm for everything and how that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So it was all critique. It was, it was kind of classic social justice warrior stuff where you, you find a fault and and you talk about that fault extensively, but you never really talk about any kind of solution because you don't have one mm-hmm. because you're just complaining. Um, so that's what was coming to mind when you were just talking is like how the the only thing I heard about norms when I was in school was how yeah. past norms of whiteness are the problem and we need to not have those anymore. But meanwhile, we're going to continue being part of the whole diagnosis machine so that we can feed so that we can get insurance reimbursement which will help us to feel more legitimate you know and and feel more on par with social workers and all of these other fields that have gained that legitimacy over the years <laughs> I just, every time so, i try and complete a thought i just end up at like <laughs> this irony and i'm like i i don't have anything else to say yeah. like i'm just confused you know well so as not to be complaining without having a solution in this conversation what do you what what are the two of you where are you with this what do you think a solution would be what is a better direction to be going well i think in in my program the way that that was handled was it we were encouraged to put aside any personal values that we had in favor of the critical race theories indoctrination and it was i would definitely characterize it as a program of indoctrination oh for sure me too yeah Yeah. and in terms of solutions i think that one of the things that would make a difference and i think i think that i think that counseling is definitely due for a huge restructuring based on all the things i found but one of the things that would make a difference would be to just dump all that You know, you are the person that you are, you have the values that you have, advertise that, you know, just make it up front. You know, I I am a Christian counselor or I am a Buddhist counselor, you know, and let the people come to you that want to come and that are okay with that. You know, at the same time, you know, open up the, the, the field of study so that we can pull from all of these different things that are teaching us about what people do, you know, whether it's from uh, the psychological research or whether it's from economics uh, or any of the other studies that are coming out, you know, neurobiology, um, all of the work that like Steven Pinker has done, you know, the, the genetics of what makes people how they are, you know, and have certain personalities, you know, let it all come in. You know, there's something to be learned there. Instead of pretending like we have all the answers, just say, hey, we don't have the answers, but we have all this information and let's see how we can apply this, you know, with our focus being on the truth 
you know, we don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, we can try and figure our way in the dark toward it. Um, just being open and honest about who we are and whatever baggage, you know, as counselors we're bringing into the, into the counseling room with. Yeah, I think I, in, in line with opening openness and honesty, I think more courageous voices like us three, you know, more professors like Christine who are like, no more, I'm not doing this in here. And Dr. Kinswater, you know, more, um, more bravery when a student is shamed on behalf of like the other students need to stand up and say, Hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because I can't tell you how many people empathize with me and felt really bad about what had happened privately um and then continued the program and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shame them for that they wanted the degree you know they'd invested time and money so it's like i, I understand why they made that decision they were afraid to speak out it's always very complicated when you have ideological regimes <laughs> because when you speak out you lose your pathway to whatever you're trying to gain right but i think that that's really the only way to revolutionize this field because that's how revolutions always happen is that enough people get so fed up that they stop going to work or they stop attending the programs or they stop giving money to something they stop supporting it they're not okay with it anymore and eventually that system is forced to reckon with the fact that it is not it is not going to be able to sustain its own survival unless it listens and right now there's so much cowardice in the field, I, I would I, I want to call out less the, the current students who are not into this, but are kind of going through the motions and more the professors and those in leadership positions who are who who are not really on board with CRT indoctrination, but who are doing it anyway. It's disgusting, you know, and when I watched every time I see Dr. Kinswater, I just I feel like he's such an example of what what a counseling professor should be, you know, because he stood up for for what was right, not just for his own values, but for his students and decided not to partake anymore and is now talking about it and spreading the word. You know, I think that's what needs to happen. More courage. Yeah, I, I would add to that, that there needs to be there needs to be a big con uh conversation about accreditation yeah big um, time. you know that is just in terms of what it adds in expense to the college degree with providing nothing yeah um is absurd mm -hmm. and you know that it is also used as a vehicle to inject this indoctrination which in the professions where there's licensure, it's effectively writing law without ever being elected and without you know any oversight or any way to fire them. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that that particular part of the system really needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Susanna, really fast. You said that you wrote, you you filed a complaint with KCREP. I thought about doing that. Um, and for various reasons, I I didn't. I suppose I still could. But what what was their response to you? Did oh, they, they totally blew me off. 
Yeah, they, they blew they, up. Yeah, they said they were going to investigate and a period of time went by and then I got an email them saying, oh, we didn't find any problems there. Yeah, of course. Um, and what's what's interesting, one of the things that I found later is the person who was the head of the department at my university at the same time was also the president of the Association for Counselors and Supervision. So I'm sure that they knew each other, you know, yeah. that there was, there was professional awareness there. And I just, I don't have any confidence at all that they really uh, took my complaints seriously. Oh, probably not. And when you, you were talking earlier about like separation of powers and how there should be more separation mm -hmm. on that note, like I, I don't really feel like if you're, if you're a member of the licensing board in a state, I don't think you should be a professor because at least while you're a member of the licensing board, because you're, you're then educating people who, and I say this because the, the head of the department in California who gaslit me and lied to me about transfer credits and was just really crazy. She's one of the heads of the California licensing board, which is ironic because last I checked, she actually hadn't been licensed yet by California, <laughs> but she's, she's on that board. And that caused me great concern what I went through with her as as a head of department and advisor, because it's like, would she try and block me from getting a license somehow? You know, and that might be a bit paranoid. But I think there's there is a point at which like we need these things should not all be interconnected because there's so much room for corruption. It's a racket. It's a racket. Yeah, yeah it's it's a racket and there's so many different conflict of interests that yeah. are happening simultaneously it's really ridiculous i mean i'm just i was taken aback when i started to figure out what was happening that they actually chose to do it that way um well i'm really sorry for that both of you had that experience because i think that you're both you would have both been excellent counselors um, likewise well, thanks. Yeah, you do. You <laughs> well, do. you know what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see an alternative organization that's yeah. based on a loose network, not a, not a certification or, or credentialing process, but mm -hmm. a federation really of, mm -hmm. of uh, philosophical counseling that doesn't claim expertise and diagnostic power, doesn't wield right. that, and doesn't get to... Um, too impressed with its own, you know, status and expertise, but rather is a network of training and mentorship and teaching opportunities and directory linking for people who want to provide this kind of help without ideology, without medicalization. So I'm yeah. hoping that something like that can, can come up because I really don't think that it, I think that the strength of counseling is in the individuals that want to go into it. Obviously the training leaves a lot to be desired. There's, you know, I'm, I don't know. We haven't talked about any of the strengths of the programs that the two of you went to. The mm -hmm. one I went to had strengths and weaknesses. The weaknesses yeah. were fatal in my case. I couldn't yeah. continue because they were too, I, I objected too strongly to the things that they were trying to do, but, but I did learn some things. And so I do see the value in some of the education that I received. And I'd like for people who want to go into this work to be able to access good training so that they can do good work. I don't think that it's just anybody can stick a sign up that says coach. 
mm-hmm. and do that work. I couldn't have done that without some of the skills that I learned. I was, I have a health coaching background, but I also learned counseling skills through the lessons that I got in school that, that I feel were very valuable to me. And I'd like for people to be able to, to access that kind of education without all the other baggage that, like you said, Lauren, leaves you needing somebody to help you process what happened to you. Yeah. Which is common. Like even for those of, even for students who don't get driven out, I'm still in touch with a couple of people who did finish the program that I went to in Louisiana. And both of them in my conversations with them have talked extensively about how traumatic that schooling experience was. Not because they're like very fragile people who find everything traumatic. Both of these women are were older students, very strong women. And it you know, they're, it really, really damaged them emotionally. You know, I mean, the amount, the amount of pain that I've gone through, I don't know about you, Susanna, but this is maybe a whole different video. It's just to kind of talk about what it's like to, to be driven out of something that you worked so hard to, to move towards that you decided to move towards that you invested time and money. in. I mean, it's really, it's deeply, deeply traumatic to go through that. And it's, it's very, very twisted that that is happening so often at the hands of, of people who should know how traumatic that would be. And it parallels the experience that clients will have if they open up and give their trust to someone who then uses them for cynical means. Yeah. And it's the, it's, it's traumatic because you are, you're being psychologically manipulated and asked to go against your own conscience and being convinced that your own intuition and, and your own understanding of how the world works is wrong. And so it's this, it's, it really is torturous mentally. And then you're being trained to perform that same thing with your clients. Right. And not just Mm -hmm. wrong, but bad, you know, it's it, the messaging is that there's something that there's something wrong with you, but that, that, that that fault makes you kind of bad because there's so much moralizing, Hmm. right? So if you, if, if you don't believe in our ideology, which is promoting all of these good things on the surface, equality, multiculturalism, all this stuff, I have no objection to in essence, right? If you object to how we're pushing it down your throat, it's not just that you're wrong. It's that you must be bad not to recognize Hmm. that this is the right thing. And that, that kind of like very deep moralistic shaming is extremely effective in, 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 in making people feel kind of crazy and questioning themselves. I certainly went through that, you know, a lot of self-questioning, a lot of doubting of my own intuition, a lot of like wondering, wait, um, is there something wrong with me? <laughs> like, did I do something wrong mm-hmm. by asking a question? And I was in my mid thirties when I was in school. So I had a very strong sense of self and many years of, of educational and professional life experience, you know, I, it's, yeah, anyway, maybe a different I, I had, <laughs> yeah, I had a very similar experience, um, particularly when I first came out and I was also required to, you know, I was told that I needed to get into therapy if I was going to stay in the program. And I, I set that up and I did before I was finally told that, you know, I wasn't going to be allowed to advance into practicum. And, you know, on, on account of having to deal with that afterwards, I'm so glad that I did because Mm -hmm. when I came out, I would just, you know, have these waves of shame 
And, you know, I had enough awareness that I was like, this is not mine, but I still feel it. Um, and I, I think I think there was at least some element of projective identification that was going on in in my experience. Um, and I feel like a number of the professors, particularly the ones that were interacting with me directly, were you know kind of transferring all of their personal yeah. baggage, you know, into into me, yeah. which was very very difficult to deal with, um, and. That's why I guess I'm talking about it now and wasn't talking about it so much at this time last year. Yeah. Um, it took me quite some time to process all of that. Yeah. And to talk about it without crying, you know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's really, and it's to go back to like this topic we talked about of our, of hypocrisy. What's the core tenant that they're always saying is do no harm. Look at the harm that they did to the three of us. I mean, really, that that in itself is like, you know, there's disgruntled students, people where schooling doesn't work out, whatever, you you know, we're going to do harm to people in life, no matter how much training we have, no matter how much we try otherwise. But this is not just like accidental of shit, I really screwed up with that one student in my career. This is intentional ostracization and harm doing mm -hmm. in a field that is supposedly based upon the foundation of doing no harm to human beings yeah i think that's a good point i think that's a really good point i think it's um i think there's a lot to talk about between the three of us and our experiences and observations of this our thoughts about our expectations prior to entering these programs our experience of the programs and the work that we've had to do after leaving um, but one of the biggest takeaways for me from all of this, and one of my biggest takeaways from the experience that I had is just how different what we're being trained to do as counselors is from what the public expects. Yes. And so that there's a field mm -hmm. that people are increasingly accessing as mental health, uh, seeking mental health services has been increasingly destigmatized mm -hmm. and normalized. So people are in, in droves accessing this field. Mm -hmm. We are not seeing people who are trained the way that most people expect. Right. And that's yeah. really shocking. And I think people need to know that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think so too. I mean, and, and, you know, most in particular that it is so far divorced from what is evidence-based mm -hmm. as actually being helpful. You know, mm -hmm. that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining me. And do you have any, is there anything we missed? Any final words, final thoughts, either of you want to offer or links or recommendations? Um, well, I, I always, I always plug this Canadian podcast called fucking canceled. So for any students out there or listeners who have been therapists and have been canceled from their jobs or whatever, that that podcast, particularly its early episodes, they're kind of veering into new topic areas now. But if you were to listen to what they did like two, three years ago, it's basically a support group for people who have gone through cancellation, which can be very hard to find because 
lot of people don't want to talk about being canceled. So that that podcast is re- was very therapeutic for me when I first went through this. Um, even though they are not therapists, it was not about therapy. Um, everything they talked about very much described what I had gone through, and I felt really seen mm-hmm. just listening to it. Um, so that's one recommendation I have for anyone who's really struggling with with being ostracized from anything really. Well, I would encourage people to check out my article at Minding the Campus. Um, I'm trying to do some other writing as well. Um, I've got I've got a Substack, and I've got some writing for it. I haven't finished it yet, uh, but I'm working on that. You know, resources that people can use if they have been canceled. More things about how there are problems in in counseling and what they can do to mitigate some of that and I'm also just working in general I'm in Tennessee so I'm trying to share some of the things that I'm doing and learning in the process to push back against this uh, in an effective way uh, using the legal system and using you know talking to my legislators and that sort of thing I mean I want to share what I'm doing so that people can replicate that in other places. Uh, Cause I think a lot of the change that we need to make, we're probably going to have to make it on the local level and work our way along until we can get to where we can change some of the bigger organizations. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get at accreditation, but I feel like, you know, the three of us, have a basis for a legal lawsuit you know if we could find a lawyer um, (laughs) based on the fact that they're not retaining students and they're not holding these universities to the standards that they've set i i'd I'd be very interested to talk to somebody who knows more about the law about that particular issue because i think that's a huge problem yeah i think the whole law around cancellation i have a friend who's who's studying to be attorney in chicago and we he and i talked about that he went through a big cancellation it's part of his motivation going to law school is kind of looking at that because cancellation is it's not new really but the way that we see it today is new and it there's not there's not really a legal framework yet that that states that you can't you know ostracize people kick them out defame them in that way it's it's very tricky because libel so is so tricky um so anyway, I think that's I think that's an interesting discussion, Leslie. If you can find a lawyer who <laughs> has any thoughts, that would be a cool video. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, I like that. Well, if you two want to send me any links, I will include them in the video description so people can go find those recommendations. And thank you again for joining me. This has been a really interesting talk, and I look forward to connecting with both of you in the future. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. Yeah, thank you.